How many of you, if I do, that know the name Marie Kondo? Anybody know that name? Got two people. And Ed, Ed, that was a quick one. You're like, I don't want to admit it, but I know it. <laughs> I think it's uh, organization lady. Yes, the organization lady. She probably has a better title than that, but uh, yeah, Marie Kondo. Uh, she had this show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Uh, it was on Netflix, and it was the number one nonfiction release in 2019. And in it, she's speaking Japanese, uh, and it's being translated, but she's, there's like, I don't know how many episodes, where she goes into somebody's house and then helps them get organized, like their house is, you know, kind of chaos, and she tidies it up, and she has several books she's released, and she has some rules that she asks people to follow. And rule number six is ask yourself if it sparks joy. And so here's what her website, how it describes that rule. In the uh, Marie Kondo method, your feelings are the standard for decision making, specifically knowing what sparks joy. To determine this when tidying, the key is to pick up each object one at a time and ask yourself quietly, does this spark joy? Pay attention to how your body responds. Joy is personal, so everyone will experience it differently. And through the process of selecting only those things that inspire joy, you can identify precisely what you love and what you need. And so hold something in your hands. And she would often have people just get all your stuff out on your bed, all from your closet and whatever else, and go through it and hold it and say, does this spark joy for me? Or does it feel like, nah, or I don't feel anything about it? And whether we agree with her exercise or not of how she's going about tidying to determine what you need, it is an interesting exercise uh, to be asking, does this thing spark joy? And her popularity at this whole concept of, does this spark joy? Should I keep it? If it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. If it does, keep it. Shows us how powerful joy is. And her popularity shows us that, yeah, this is a thing that we're in search of, that we're longing for, that we want joy. And that's our theme for this year, uh, for 2023. It's going to be joy, pursuing joy in God um, and joy in our us as a congregation. And then also bringing that joy to the world that Christmas, um, Luke chapter 2 says, the angels tell the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, that uh, good news church, that we ought to be people of great joy because we have the good news at the center of who we are and what we do. And we're doing a little two-week introduction on joy. Last week, we were asking the question, is God happy? Uh, is God joyful? And the big idea summary I gave was, God is full of joy that he wants to share. God didn't create the world in order to have joy, and God doesn't exist uh, to give us joy, but God is joyful, and he created out of that joy because he wanted to share it with us, and now he invites us to receive joy from him. And this week we're answering, does God make you happy? Is joy or happiness one of the benefits of knowing God? Are you experiencing that benefit? And there's, I shared last week, there's this lullaby I sing to Hudson, it's called Pass It On, my mom sang it to me. In the last verse it says, I wish for you, Hudson, this happiness I've found. The original song didn't have Hudson. I switched it. It had friend, but Hudson worked too. Uh, and so it, I, I sing to him, I wish for you, Hudson, this happiness that I've found. And when I sing that, I ask myself, is that true? That when he looks at me as his dad, does he say, my dad's happy, and he's telling me I can have the happiness that he's found. That or does he see me and he's like, I don't get the words of that. I don't get that line in the song, Dad. Like it says... Uh, this ha you're, that you're happy, but you don't see it. And so the question is, does God make us happy? And would other people describe us as happy or joyful? And I'm using those words, joy and happiness, as interchangeable. I know there's some uh, people who make a distinction of saying, like, you know, happiness is about <coughs> circumstances and joy is more about 
uh, something you can have that's a constant, you can choose it. And I'm just not really super convinced that the Bible makes that distinction. Um, but, you know, if it's okay, if that's helpful to you. But I'm just going to use the words interchangeably. And, but the question is, why does this matter? Why does it matter if God makes us happy? It's like, well, is that really what God is after? That uh, we should be happy? No, we're supposed to listen to him, obey him, do what he says. Like, what does happiness have to do with it? Uh, well, <clears throat> joy is relational. And joy says, I want to be with you. I'm glad to be together. I'm happy to see you, to be in your presence with you. And here's a quote from a book I shared last week. It says, God designed our brains to run on joy, like a car runs on fuel. Our brains desire joy more than any other thing. As we go through our day, our right brains are scanning our surroundings, looking for people who are happy to be with us. And if that's true, that God designed our brains to run on joy, and it's the thing we crave above everything else, that means that joy is determining everything you do. You're, in, in some ways, what Marie Kondo said is, you're like, should I do this? Does it spark joy? If it doesn't, I'm not going to do it. It's like we can, we're looking for joy. And if we don't get the real thing, we'll settle for pseudo-joys that don't actually give us what they want. They're like empty calories. Uh, and we're told um, that God is present everywhere. And when we surrender to Jesus, that he's then present in us. And so what we read there in that quote was, um, our brains are scanning our surroundings, looking for people who are happy to be with us. And if God is everywhere... And when we trust in Jesus, he comes to dwell inside of us. God is always with us. And so it's a big deal if our brain is always scanning the, you know, the environment of those who are present with us to ask, are these people happy to be with me? Are they glad to be together? Um, and God's always there. It's a, we need to answer the question, is God glad to be with us? Is he happy to see us? Uh, does he like us? So, so when we see him, is it like there's someone who's not happy to be with me and we're searching for joy and we didn't found it. So is God glad to be with us? And just a few other items from that book that's talking about our brains and joy and, and, and God. Uh, there's several things that tells us about why joy is important. It says uh, joy has a huge impact because joy is the answer to feeling closer to God. Uh, joy helps us regulate our emotions. Like when something really difficult is happening, joy is it helps us to be able to calm down and then move into that with not being in a, a fight or flight, just scared or mad or you know, self-protective response. It uh, helps us endure suffering. It, joy helps us heal from trauma. It gives us freedom from addictions. And it's what we need to grow as disciples of Jesus and children of God. And so joy is a really big deal. And just, you know, if you just read a couple chapters in the Bible, uh, you know, one good book to read would be Philippians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's really a letter of joy. It's like you don't get through any section in there with him talking about joy. Read through the Psalms, rejoicing in God. Joy is a huge theme in the Bible, and so it's very important for us. And so let's imagine that God was doing the Marie Kondo method. Rule six is, does this spark joy? And God does that with everything that belongs to him, everything in all creation, uh, including us, that God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will belong to me. Like this, You'll be the sheep of my pasture. And as God's people, we belong to him. And so when he holds us in his hands, do we spark joy? If God's holding us. We belong to him. And he asks, does this spark joy? And if it doesn't, I'm going to get rid of it. If it does, I'm going to keep it. Like I know that's not how God works, but just imagine the exercise. Like He's holding us. Do we spark joy? And so the question, a personal question for you is, does God enjoy me? to ask yourself, does God enjoy me? And then, why or why not? Uh, because that's sometimes just as important as, does God enjoy me? Uh, because you may say, well, God does enjoy me, 
when I've got you know things on track, when I've kept up with my Bible reading plan, I've got a 40-day streak. You know, I haven't made a, done a major sin this week, so God's enjoying me. So I'm, I might ask you, does God enjoy me? It may be like, yeah, I'm running a good life. Uh, that's why He enjoys me. Or you might say, does God enjoy me? No, because this past week I just didn't think about Him at all. I was hurtful to people. You might say, God doesn't enjoy me. And so, does God enjoy you? And why or why not? And that question really helps us to see, do we really understand the gospel, the good news of who God is? I want to just start off as we're considering that question to give you a principle, which there's a number of books that highlight this principle of religion, of worship, of spirituality, um, and I've seen it all over the Bible. And the principle is this, you reflect what you receive. So we're going to talk about that principle for a little bit. You reflect what you receive. And most people maybe would word it more like um, we become what we worship or you are what you love. Uh, basically, the thing that we're receiving from, that we're looking to, trusting in, is that we become like that thing. And there's you know, a number of, a lot of places in the Bible, as I've done um, Bible reading plans through the Bible, I've just taken note uh, and made a little, I have a little uh, digital note app that I put, oh, I see this principle here, I see this principle here, where it's literally just stated and so uh, you become what we worship. And so one option is to become like idols, to become like false gods. This was very common in the Old Testament that people had these little statues of these gods that they thought were out there, but that statue represented their, their presence, their dominion in their life. And people would become like them. Let me give you just uh, one example. Um, you know, Psalm 115, 48. This is a really one that really sums up that this principle of we become what we worship. No. One fifteen four to eight. If I can get it. I feel like this happens every Sunday, like my fingers don't work. Ah. Psalm one fifteen four to eight, uh, talking about false gods. It says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And here's the line, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So Pete, they're crafting these uh, little statues, that, or big statues, that represent a God to them. And this is you know, somebody in this psalm saying like, uh, these things have hands, they don't do anything, though. They have ears and don't do anything. They don't talk, they don't walk, they don't do anything. Those who become them, or who, those who make them, become like them. And you see this in, uh, in idols, really that word in the Bible, uh, is the meaning behind it is empty or worthless or vain. And so it's saying you're making these worthless, empty, vain things, and you become like them. Just a few examples, Jeremiah 2.5. It says, they went after worthlessness and became worthless. Hosea 4.12, longing after idols made them foolish. Hosea 9.10, as vile as the gods you worship. Hosea 12.10, worthless because of their idol worship. And so their gods are worthless and empty and vile. And so it's saying, God's showing this thing that when you worship those things, you become like them. But then the other side is true too. When we worship the one true God, when we look to him, we become like him as well. 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18 you know, if you want to write some of these down, you can look at them later. No, we're not focusing on them in depth, but Second uh, Corinthians 3.18, talking about looking to Jesus, says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so saying, looking at Jesus and beholding His glory, all of His godness, all of who He is, we get transformed into that glory from one degree to another. And that's really, I mean, if you wanted me to tell you, like, hey Mitch, how does change work? How can I be transformed? How do I, if I was to sum up the whole Bible on what it says about change, it it would be this. We become what we worship. You reflect what you receive. And God made us to be mirrors that reflect what our God is like. And Martin Luther, who lived in the 1500s and started, you know, the Protestant Reformation, uh, said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And you see many times in Scripture, there's this little triad of things called faith, hope, and love. I'm sure you've seen them on signs and Hobby Lobby or whatever. But really, that describes what our God is. What do you put your faith in? What do you put uh, your hope in? Where do you place, uh, what are you loving? Faith, hope, and love. That tells us what our God is. Where is my faith, hope, and love? What am I trusting? What am I hoping in? What am I loving? And Luther saying, whatever your heart clings to, whatever it has faith, hope, and love in, that is really your God. And we become a reflection of what our God is like. And so we look to our God to receive from our God. And you reflect what you receive. And so what do we receive from false gods? Uh, things like money, and sex, and power, um, stuff. You know, any, Anything we look to to, be, to say, I'm trusting in this thing to make my life secure, to make me happy, to give me joy. Um, and false gods, what do we receive from them? Nothing. They're empty. That's what the Bible says, that you worship them and you became as empty as they were. You became as worthless, worthless as they were. And so false gods, those things of the world that we might try to put our faith, hope, and love in, that they just empty us and we become foolish because of those things. But God calls us, turn to me. Come, turn from those things you're trusting in and turn to me. What do we receive from him? And we could talk about all the physical benefits of like, you know, God giving us homes and bodies and air and you know, this building, you know, our clothes. We could talk about those things. But um, behind those things are what we receive from God relationally. And we might go to a passage like Exodus 35, 6-7. What is God like relationally? What do we receive from, from him relationally? And Exodus 34, 6-7 says, He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness, and so we receive that from God. God, we receive this from you: your mercy, your grace, your love, um, your forgiveness that you're giving me. But let's ask this: Do we receive joy from God? That when God relationally does God give us joy that we receive from Him, that we then reflect to others? Uh, does God enjoy us? Is God glad to see us? Is he happy to be with us? If you reflect what you receive, then uh, if you were receiving joy from God, you would be reflecting joy back to God and to other people. And so if we ask ourselves, do I have joy, and do I enjoy God, and do I enjoy others? And we, if our answer to that is no, I'm not really seeing a lot of joy in my life, we need to ask, who's the God we're trying to receive from? If it's the one true God, uh, this is a God who tells us that he has joy in himself, and he also enjoys us. So perhaps deep down we don't believe God has joy if we're not very joyful ourselves. And last week we asked, what reason do we have to believe that God is joyful? Why would we even you know, think that? Why would we assume that? And one way to think of it is God is love. First uh, John 4 tells us that. And joy is how love feels. And because God is full of love, God is full of joy. From Father to Son, we drew this fun little picture. Um, so the Father 
God the Father enjoys, enjoys God the Son. God the Son enjoys God the Father. And the Spirit is, the, is that spirit of joy between them. You know, when you might, you might see someone and be like, they just have a really joyful spirit. Or they just have, you know, just a really kind spirit. And it's like the spirit between the Father and the Son is a spirit of joy and love and peace. So we asked last week, what reason do we have to believe that God is joyful? And this week we're asking, what reason do we have to believe God is joyful toward us? that he would enjoy us at all. And joy is relational. Joy says, I want to be with you. And joy is primarily transmitted through the face, your face. When you walked in today, uh, you, before you even thought about it, you, with that quote we read earlier, your brain scanned the room to see, is anybody glad that I'm here? Or are people kind of like cold towards me, don't really care if I'm here, don't want me to be here? We automatically, any room we walk in, we do that. And that is... Joy, glad to be with you, is transmitted through the face. So let me just, let's just turn back to one important passage in the Old Testament. Uh, it's Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. It's page 114 if you're using the Black Bibles back there. So it's Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And last week I read from Psalm 1611, and it says, God, in your presence there is abundance of joy. Uh, and actually that word presence uh, it's not the exact word for presence. Really, really, it says, God, before your face, there is fullness of joy. And so joy is transmitted through the face. And this person in Psalm 1611 is saying, God, before your face, when I'm you know, in front of your face, I have fullness of joy. And so the question is, okay, well, how does God transmit, God's full of joy, how does he transmit joy to us that we would have it? And when, does God's face light up when he sees us? Does it beam with joy and delight? When he looks at us. <clears throat> Number 6, verses 24 to 26. This is uh, a blessing that God gave to uh, the priests of the Old Testament. This is a blessing that's supposed to speak to the people. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the part where it says countenance, verse 26, my Bible has a little number there with a note that says, or face, the Lord lift up his face. And so we have, bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, Lord lift up his countenance or face upon you and give you peace. We're just going to focus on that part where it says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And maybe you've seen or heard somebody say to somebody, um, you're just glowing. Um, anybody ever said that to you? Or you maybe saw like a, a married couple, they just got married and it's, or they just got engaged and you say, and you see like, you're just like glowing or somebody had a baby and they just like, when they're looking at the baby, there's just a like glow to their face. There's this face radiance and beaming and warmth. It's just like, man, there's a glow to you. And that's what it's saying here. The Lord make his face shine upon you. What does it mean for God's face to shine upon you? Um, to be glowing and beaming and radiant towards you. It's, that's a, an expression of joy, that we are, are glowing and radiant and uh, kind of putting warmth out to somebody, not, not literally, but like there's a warmth there of uh, emotional and relational warmth and saying the Lord lift up his countenance upon you to look at you and for you to see him with his face shining upon you. Then if we flip forward to Psalm 67, on page 481, if you're using the Bibles, the Black Bibles here, Psalm 67, page 481. This is really uh, a reflection on what we just read in Numbers chapter 6. The title in my Bible is Make Your Face Shine Upon Us. Um, there's a famous book written about how this psalm is so great for thinking about 
uh, taking the good news to the nations, to the world, because it's talking about what happens when people experience um, the gospel. So Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And so it's a a praise song, which is kind of a prayer saying, we want God, everyone, every people, uh, every people group to be praising you and singing about you. But the beginning starts with, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. The first two lines from the blessing we saw in Numbers chapter 6. And why would that happen? Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth. Saving power among all nations. And so to experience God being gracious to us and blessing us in his face of joy to be shining upon us, God does that in order that other people would come to know him, that we're to be a people of joy as we receive God's joy and delight and his uh, shining face uh, toward us and saying, I want to bless you, I love you, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm favoring you. I want you, you're special to me. And then that, we take that out to the world. And then we looked a little bit ago at 2 Corinthians 3.18 where it talks about uh, beholding the glory of Jesus. And just a little bit after that, so this is page 965 of the Black Bibles. If you're using those, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We saw verse 18, page 965, says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then skip a little bit down, chapter 4, verse 4. Basically Paul saying, well why, if we have such a great thing here, why aren't people believing it? Why aren't they turning to Jesus? What's keeping people from, if this is such good news, what keeps people from uh, surrendering to him? Verse 4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I always find that little last part interesting. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying people who don't trust in Jesus are blinded to seeing the face of Jesus, which in seeing that, they would be seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining out from him. Uh, the glory, we talked about glory as God's uh, shining forth of all, of all of who he is, the weightiness of his being, all of God's Godness shining out. When you look at Jesus, you see, yeah, that's, that's who God is. That's what he's all about. This is a perfect representation Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. So if you want to know uh, what is God kind of, uh, if his glory could shine out and become a person, it would be Jesus. Uh, John 1, we're told, he put the glory of God put on flesh. And so we see there's the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And there's, over the years I've been just keeping track of passages where it says, does God enjoy us? Is he pleased with us? Does he like us? And some of these passages, I'll give them to you now. Uh, we won't turn to them. Exodus 19.5. Uh, 
God calls his people his treasured possession. Exodus 19.5. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God rejoices over you with gladness exalts over you with loud singing that uh, can you imagine God like just uh, you know seeing you and saying I'm rejoicing over you with gladness I'm I'm exulting over you with loud singing just God celebrating like I love this I, I make up lots of songs uh, for Hudson probably not of them are worth really repeating because they're usually kind of weird but uh, you know singing songs to him just saying like you know I okay I'll, I'll do this part saying like I love my Hudson so much you know he has this little like ukulele he just got for Christmas so and it's so out of tune or slash I don't know how to play it but I'm just singing Hudson I love him and I'm just like singing and he just loves it and so God singing over us you know rejoicing over you with gladness exalting over you with loud singing Ephesians 1.18 it says uh, we are his glorious inheritance and often we think God's giving us an inheritance right that he we're his children and there's something that we have to look forward to to inherit but God is also saying that you people that belong to me, you are my glorious inheritance. I'm looking forward to being with you in heaven or in the new creation. We are his glorious inheritance. Ephesians 5.29, talking about uh, how the a husband ought to love their wife as Christ has loved the church. And then talking about, like, well, nobody ever hates their own body because he talks about they become one flesh. A husband and wife become one flesh, just like Jesus and the church become one as well, and then if we're one flesh, that means it's like one body, right? Not physically, but, you know, relationally, emotionally. Uh, but it's like, and he says, no one ever hates their body. What do they do with their body? They nourish it and cherish it. And so saying Jesus is nourishing and cherishing the church as his bride with whom he is now one, united uh, with him. In First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, and then 9, God calls us his own possession, his chosen and precious people. And there's a couple times, I think three times in Scripture, where I've read this phrase, the Apostle Paul says it, um, that Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 says it personally. God, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.25, talking about Jesus and the church, uh, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so just ask the question, uh, how does Jesus feel about people whom he loved and for whom he gave his life. And maybe we think like, well, you know, I'm kind of just a dirty sinner, and so Jesus had to die for me, and now I'm supposed to feel bad about that the rest of my life. Well, but how does Jesus feel about someone that he says, I loved you, or I do love you, I love you, and I gave myself for you, I laid down my life for you, uh, that I was willing to die on your behalf to give you what you really need. I loved you, I gave myself for you. When he looks at the church, I love her, and I gave myself for her when he looks at his people. So to summarize this, the way I've phrased it for myself, is that God loves you and even likes you. Because we might think, well, love is kind of like, you know, this commitment, you can't go back on it. Like, he married us, but he doesn't believe in divorce, and so he, you know, has to stay in the relationship to kind of, you know, be faithful and be a good person. But it's not just that God loves us, which I would say love is action and affection, um, that includes liking. God loves us and even likes us because that's who he is. Uh, it's not that maybe there's you know something uh, that's so lovable and enjoyable about us um, that you know, I think about some of the things I have in my house that if you were to look at them and be like, why do you have this weird thing laying around? Katie, just the other day, there's this cane. Uh, it's like you know this high that I got in Arizona like visiting my uncle. 
and Hudson, every time he plays with it, you know, he'll be walking around for a while, but eventually he resorts to whacking. And the corn king takes a little break, goes on top of the fridge, and finally Katie was like, we're going to clear out the top of the fridge, and this cane is up there. And, I'm, and she's like, I just want to throw it away. Hudson always hits us with it. I'm like, but I, but I got it from Arizona. Like, I got it from a vacation. Like, I've had this for, you know, 30 years or whatever. And so for her, and for all of you, you'd be like, what's up with this cane? But for me, it has, it's special to me that it has value and worth to me, even though at face value it's not very special or worth very much. And so God saying, I have loved you and gave myself for you, is him saying, we read this in, with Israel too, that I didn't choose you, Israel, because you're more righteous or because you're more numerous. No, I chose you because I chose you. I've chosen to set my affection upon you, that God says, you are special, you are treasured, uh, I'm going to delight in you because I've chosen to do so. Um, not necessarily because he was compelled to do it from outside of himself. And the best news we could ever hear is that God loves me and he even likes me. Because that's who he is. It's based on him. It doesn't go up and down based on me, but that's who he is. That's where it's flowing from him. And he doesn't just put up with us, but he actually enjoys you, delights in you, treasures you, adores you, cherishes you. And we might say, we do say, we're made to worship God. And you could say worship is enjoying God. We're made to enjoy God. And so is God just standing around saying, enjoy me. Hey, I'm commanding you, enjoy me, do it. Like, is that how God gets us to enjoy him? Is think that would work for Hudson if I said, Hudson, enjoy me. You need to enjoy me. It's a command. Uh, do we have to enjoy someone who isn't enjoyable, who has no joy of their own? But how does God bring us to a point where we enjoy him? No, we're, we're drawn to enjoy God by the joy he himself has and by the joy he expresses toward us. He's a fountain of joy from which we are filled with joy. He's a warm fire we're attracted to in a dark and cold world. We talked a little bit before that uh, our God is a loving unity of three equally divine persons. Uh, eternally, for all time, there wasn't a, a moment when Jesus, God's Son, was created he has been the eternal Son from the Father. There wasn't a time when the Father didn't exist. There wasn't a time when the Spirit didn't exist. He's a loving unity of three equally divine persons. And these little things are, you know, the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. But all of them, Son is God. Father is God. Spirit is God. I didn't make this up, by the way. This is an old, old, old way of thinking about this. Um, but we, what we're invited into is that the Father enjoys the son perfectly as a father ought to. The son enjoys his father perfectly as a son ought to. And the spirit is that spirit of love, joy, and peace between them. And when what happens is we are invited into that. And that it's not now, we have to go find it on our own, but we're invited into this joy, into this love. And the slot, and don't, you know, don't take this out of context or misunderstand, the slot we're invited into is this slot because we become beloved children. Is that just like Jesus is. And the Bible uh, audaciously says the Father loves us as he's loved Jesus uh, from all of eternity. And so it's like, wait, this is, this is the status and standing we get in this relationship as we come into the, being beloved children who are enjoyed by the Father and whom we now enjoy. And we're becoming like Jesus. That we're, we, You could say we marry into the family because Jesus uh, is... You know, the, the husband of the church, so we married into it or were adopted into it. There's a lot of images that are used in the Bible. We get brought into this family, and the position we stand in is of beloved children who are enjoyed. That's our status and our standing. 
There's a little book up here I have that, you know, there's a couple books here that if you were interested and want to just kind of like, you know, I want to increase my joy in 2023. Uh, um, this book, um, this would maybe be the, the last one I'd recommend up here for just your personal reading, but um, this is called The Joy Project. And I just wanted to uh, read one quote from it. It talks about God intends for his children to enjoy his love and in that love to find the joy that gives life its ultimate meaning. And just the term, he says the joy project, because he's like, God is working for our joy. It's, he's taken upon himself the project of giving us joy, and then he goes over um, uh, various uh, truths and doctrines to see, show how do all these uh, point to God giving us joy. So that's a, a neat way to think of it. And so we receive God's joy in himself and toward us, and we reflect it back to him as worship. Uh, God's joy ignites and fuels our joy. God loves, enjoys, treasures, delights in us, cherishes us, takes pleasure in us, and we then reflect that back to him by loving and enjoying and treasuring and cherishing and delighting in and taking pleasure in him. And so you could say, it's kind of a weird sentence, but you can say we are enjoyed into enjoying, that God enjoys us because we are enjoyed, now we become people who are enjoying him and who are enjoying others. And this is a, a quote from another pastor from the 16th century named John Calvin. He said, Indeed, no one gives himself freely and willingly to God's service unless having tasted his fatherly love, he's drawn to love and worship him in return. And so what he's saying there is we will never love or worship God unless we've first tasted of God's love for us. And maybe you're wondering, well, what about when we sin, when we disobey when we hurt others, when we fail, when we fall short, is God enjoying us in those moments? Like, what's he doing? Like, surely he's not saying, like, yay, gold star, Mitch, for hurting, you know, that, that person, you know, being mean to them. And I just want to share very briefly my story with joy. As maybe four, and I think I've shared this story maybe once in a service before. I can't remember, but um, maybe four years ago, I was just walking and praying and talking to God, and I was thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, and if you're reading the the weekly newsletters were going through the fruit of the Spirit. And I was thinking, like, well, if this is God's Spirit toward me, or if this is the Spirit God wants me to have, He wants me to be loving, joyful, peaceful, and, and so on, then that He never commands me to do something He doesn't already do. His commands are a reflection of His character. And so if this is what He wants me to look like, that must be what He looks like. And so I started praying through the fruit of the Spirit. Like, what does it mean that God loves me, that God enjoys me? And right there I got stuck. I was like, God, what do you mean? joy. Like, God has joy toward me. God enjoys me. And I got through all the other ones decently well. And then it was like, the joy one, I just stuck on it. Because I was like, what does it even mean? And the question that would come to me is like, what's to enjoy? Uh, I mean, I'm always messing up. I'm never perfect. I never have perfect motives. I'm never doing the perfect actions. I'm always, you know, have so many things that I ought to be doing. I have so many things I've done wrong. Like, what is to enjoy about me? And how could God have joy toward me? And so it started me on a journey of just looking in Scripture and finding these passages where it's like, uh, right there, you say that you enjoy us, God, you cherish us, that you treasure us, that you delight in us. It's right there. And I would often think, well, how much am I enjoyed? I'm enjoyed as much as I deserve, right? <laughs> like I've got to measure up to something in order to be enjoyed. And what really helped me is to separate out who we are versus what we do. And I had this kind of continuum where I felt like, uh, there was something on this side and something on this side. And it was like a, a two, two opposite poles of something. I didn't need that to do that. I guess I could have done this here. Uh, there's two, two poles. And on the one end is 
God is only happy that I'm his son when he's happy with what I do. And the other is that God is happy I'm his son no matter what I do, even if I'm disobeying. Uh, and I had these two poles, and I felt like, well, I'm on this one where I feel like God's only happy I'm his son when I'm you know, doing what he says, when I'm uh, you know, uh, depending on what I do. And I had to get in the switch to be like, well, no, God is, I'm his beloved child. It, it, he's, he may not be happy with what I do in that moment, but he's always happy with who I am, that I'm his kid, and that he doesn't want that to change. He doesn't wish it away, say, like, this guy's just too much of a mess up. He's too broken. Like, I wish I hadn't adopted him. Like, you know, he never changes that. He always has perfect love and joy and affection towards us as a father ought to. And he may not like our actions, but he still likes us. He, he wants to enjoy both. He wants to both enjoy who, you, who we are. This is my kid. This is my beloved son. He also wants to enjoy what we do. And that's why you find so many commands like, this is how I want you to live. I want to be pleased with what you do. I'm, you know, Jesus uh, was God's beloved son, in whom he's well pleased, uh, both in who he was and what he did. And God wants that too, that we are growing and learning his love and joy for us. And then we, that comes out as obedience to him. But both are a gift, undeserved and unearned. Because all of what I do is not perfect. And so, but God is, because God is gracious, he is pleased with less than perfect obedience. And I might, maybe that, I'm just going to say that and not explain it anymore. Maybe you're like, I need to think about that. Uh, because God is gracious, he's pleased with less than perfect obedience. But also because God is gracious, he's adopted me into his family. And grace means undeserved, unearned favor. What does it mean to favor someone? For someone to be your favorite. We don't really like favorites, but all God's kids are his favorite. But I mean, someone's special to you. It's like, I just, I just love this kid. Like, I love seeing him. I love doing stuff with him. I love making him happy. And that's what God gives. That's where his joy comes from. And so does God make you joyful or happy? You reflect what you receive. And if there's no joy, that maybe perhaps means you're not receiving joy. And if your love for God has grown cold, you could warm your heart by the fire of his love for you. I just want to close with one image. Uh, Hudson, many times, he'll have a toy that he's playing with, and maybe he's trying to get something to work, but it's not working, uh, or maybe one's broken, and I might be watching this frustration, and I might say, uh, Hudson, um, here, give it here. And, I'll, and what, what's my intent when I say, you know, give me the toy? Am I wanting to take it from him so I can have it? Um, and I'm just wanting to take it so he doesn't have it at all. Well, my intent in that, to saying, here, here, give it to me, buddy, is to say, is to take it and fix it. It's something broken that he's unable to fix himself. And I'm saying, give it here, buddy, so I can work on fixing it. So what does Jesus hold out his hand to us? When he's holding out his hand to us and saying of our life, give it to me. Is he saying, give it to me because you don't deserve it? Give it to me because I want it? Uh, what's he saying? He's seeing people who are having a tough time with life. And he's seeing that we can't fix it on our own. You've had something broken here. And he's like, hey, give it to me. I take, let me take it in my hands so I can fix it, so I can put it back to how it's supposed to be and help you use it how it's supposed to. Let, let me help. And Ed read for us earlier from John 15. The last verse he read was 15:11. Jesus, Why is Jesus saying all this stuff? He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So when Jesus sees our life and he says, here, give it to me, he's saying, I want to take it so that my joy can be in you and your joy may be full. That I'm seeing here having a tough time with this. Let me help. Uh, let me take it, uh, take your life and show you how you can have true joy in me and in the Father. I'm going to pray and then 
And we're going to take a moment to reflect on what God may be saying to you today. If you want to take home with you. Father, we so often try to find our joy in lesser things. In things that are non-relational and that really don't fulfill or satisfy. God, we confess that we've turned from you as the fountain and source of our joy. That back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve decided they wanted to find joy by themselves on their own terms. And so we do that too. But God, we want to come to you as the one who is full of joy and who actually enjoys us. Lord, would you help us to see you that way? Would you let us feel and experience the radiance of your face towards us, the shining of it, the glow of it, the delight in it? Would you let us receive that uh, today and each day? In the name we pray. Amen.